What Billy Graham was to the 20th century, D.L. Moody was to the 19th. Moody, as I mentioned a few months ago, was a 17-year-old living in Boston as a shoe salesman when a man named Edward Kimball took an interest in him and led him to faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm sure at the time, neither Kimball nor Moody had any idea of the impact that Moody would have on our world. Yet he was probably one of the most influential evangelists of his day. He led citywide crusades all over the U.S. and Great Britain. He founded the Moody Bible Institute and what is now known as Moody Church, along with Moody Press. And Moody would later in his years write the following. He said, when I was converted, I made the mistake of thinking the battle was over. That my old corrupt nature, the old life, was gone. But I found out after serving Christ for a few months that conversion was more like enlisting in the army and that a battle was on hand. You know, that lesson that Moody learned is a truth that we've been talking about from Galatians 5 for the last eight messages from this book. In fact, it was on the 29th of September that we began looking at verse 16. And I really feel that, again, this is the high point of the letter. And what Paul is trying to communicate to us in this section of Scripture is simply this. And that is that no Christian can give honest testimony to the fact that when they become a Christian, sin is somehow erased from their life. But that doesn't happen. The tendency to sin remains with us our entire life. Even though we're saved. Even though we're justified, even though we're declared righteous in the sight of God, we still sin. And here's the worst part of it. We still derive pleasure from our sin. We still struggle with sinful habits, not just sinful isolated acts. And sometimes we fall into shameful, scandalous sin. But never be surprised when you hear of a Christian falling into scandalous sin. It happens And sadly, it happens with all uh, too often to a high degree of frequency. Our thoughts and our words are not always what they ought to be. Our time is often wasted on the frivolous and worldly pursuits. Our minds and our affections are often set on things that are going to pass away. Our hearts grow cold to things that are holy and evangelistic. And what Paul is doing in the latter portion of Galatians 5 is he's talking about this conflict, this battle that is raging within. And Paul answers in the final verses of this chapter that I want us to look at this morning, the question, how can I have victory over sin in this conflict? Earlier he's talked about the conflict between these two warring factions. He calls the old sin nature the flesh. And then he says there's a regenerated person living within. That's the new nature. He's talked about through the enablement of God, the Holy Spirit, in your life and mine, we can produce the fruit of the Spirit. And now he's going to give us the how. 
Can I start by stating the obvious? The Holy Spirit does not produce fruit in the Christian life without our cooperation. Right? You know, that's so basic, so fundamental, so elementary, Watson. I'm almost embarrassed to say it. But many fail to appreciate that truth. Some people think, well, you know, the way I'm going to grow in my walk with God, the way I'm going to get victory over sin is just sit back and let God work. Listen, there are certain disciplines that are needed for you and me to grow in our walk with God. And Paul is telling us that there are two very important, essential things that the Christian must do to gain victory over sin. And he talks about them in these three verses at the end. First of all, he says we're to mortify, we're to crucify the flesh. He says in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is what theologians call mortification. And unfortunately, it's one of the most neglected truths of the Christian faith. But also one of the most important. In fact, I would argue that spiritual growth is not possible without it. And mortification of the flesh, that's an old King James word, is simply, amen. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. God bless you. I'm sure we've got a few more KJVers out there. But it's what Paul talks about in Romans 6.11, where he says, consider yourselves dead to sin. It simply means we put to death the sin that is in our life. It's what the Puritan William Ames called the wasting away of sin. Paul said earlier that the new nature that is made alive by the Spirit when a person believes is engaged in this mortal combat so that the desires of their regenerated nature wage war against the passions of the sinful flesh. And what he's going to tell us is that in this warfare there can be no truce. The spiritual nature cannot enter into peace negotiations with the sinful nature. It can't surrender. What we do is we battle sin till the death. And it's only the Spirit that can defeat the flesh. And it's only winning. Uh, we only bring about that by daily surrendering ourselves to God and allowing Him to give us victory over the temptations of our flesh. And we do it by walking in the Spirit. It's not by, done by asceticism or physical means. It's not done through religious activity. It's not done through human effort. Friend, the only way the old sinful nature is going to be defeated is by the power of the Spirit of God working in you. Flesh cannot defeat flesh. Resolves, determination, New Year's resolution, promises. Trying to do something in your own power only leads to further defeats and frustrations. Victory comes by yielding to the power of the cross. And when the Spirit captures the flesh, it does not simply hold it as a prisoner of war. It doesn't put it in a concentration camp. 
You know what you and I need to do with the old sinful nature? We need to commit the ultimate act of war. And that is we have to put it to death. We die to sin. You know, I have been saving this cartoon for some time. And in the words of Scripture, it's come to the season for such a time as this. But it's a cartoon where two couples are sitting around in a living room, and they're obviously engaged in a Bible study. And the dear woman says the following, Well, I haven't actually died to sin, but I did feel kind of faint once. You know, that is so typical of us. You know, we're a little hesitant. We get a little faint when it comes to sin. You know what Paul says you got to do? You've got to kill it. You've got to die to sin. And would you please note that it's not just any death, but rather it's the crucifixion, death by crucifixion. One writer says this, To take up the cross was our Lord's vivid figure of speech for self-denial. Every follower of Christ is to behave like a condemned criminal and carry his cross to the place of execution. Now, Paul takes the metaphor to its logical conclusion. We must not only take up our cross and walk with it, but actually see that the execution takes place. Now listen carefully. He says, we are actually to take the flesh, our willful and wayward self, and nail it to the cross. I want you to think about crucifixion just for a moment. Because I think it's very significant that Paul uses that term. And that was the means whereby our Lord purchased our salvation through his atoning death on the cross. A couple of things are interesting about crucifixion. The first is simply this. Crucifixion was a shameful way to die. It was reserved for hardened criminals, for traitors, murderers, the scum of society. And so it's fitting that Paul uses this imagery because nothing is more shameful than the sinful nature which is in rebellion against God and murders the human soul. Secondly, crucifixion was a painful way to die. It was an excruciating means of death. And likewise, putting to death the sinful desires that you and I have within can be a painful process. It's painful not only to the body at times, but also to the soul. It's putting our sin to death. And you know why it's painful? I mean, let's be honest. Our sinful nature loves the sinful deeds so much that we secretly hope sometimes that they'll live on and on. And in some cases, get even stronger. So it's fitting that Paul says here, I want you to crucify the flesh. So not only was it shameful and painful, but thirdly, it was a gradual way to die. People who would 
go through crucifixion, would often linger on the cross for days before they drew their last breath. John Brown, not the one who started the school, but a 19th century theologian said this, Crucifixion was a punishment appropriated to the worst crimes of the basest sort of criminals and produced death, not suddenly, but gradually. He goes on and he says, True Christians do not succeed in completely destroying the flesh while here below, but they have fixed it to the cross and they are determined to keep it there till it expires. Now, we never fully put it to death. We can weaken it. We can hopefully put it in the ICU unit. But it never expires. It's stubborn. And let me add this. When it comes to eliminating sin and defeating sin, there are no shortcuts. I hate to break it to you, but it's a long, slow, painful process. There are no quick fixes to long-term patterns of sin. And I think the last thing that we can say about crucifixion is that it was always final. It was always final. Those who were crucified may have died slowly, but they always died. Nobody survived crucifixion. That's why the nonsense that Jesus somehow survived crucifixion and was placed in a borrowed tomb and somehow the cool air of the tomb revived him is absolute nonsense. There's a battle that's going on. And this battle that is raging within is one that we will eventually gain full and complete victory over when we are in the presence of God. Can I remind you of something I shared with you again eight messages ago? This is so critical. Tim, you like that one. <laughs> when you think of salvation, it is so critical. If you, can, if you can grasp this concept in your mind, it will be so incredibly helpful for you. You need to understand that there are three tenses to salvation. There is justification, where we are saved from the penalty of our sin. There is sanctification, and that's what we're talking about this morning, where we are saved from the power of sin in our present life. And the third tense of salvation is glorification, where we will be saved from the very presence of sin sometime in the future. But the key thing to remember here is that the sinful nature has already received a mortal blow. Its death certificate has been guaranteed. And so the question is not if it will die, but when it will die. And it will die when you and I die. Its death certificate was guaranteed by Christ's death on the cross. And as J.I. Packer says, there was a co-crucifixion with Jesus Christ. Friend, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, 
you died there with him. In fact, if you're familiar with the book of Galatians, you know that there's a connection between verse 24 and Galatians 2.20. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 2.20? He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the critical difference between those two verses is in chapter 2, we are crucified with Christ. And in chapter 5, we do the crucifying. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. This verb verse carries the idea of those who are literally with Christ, those who are in possessions of Christ, those who are God's own people. We are the executioners of our old sinful nature. And the verb is expressed in the past tense as already having taken place. And it happened when you and I came to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. It happened at our conversion. At that time, we, in a very real sense, went with Christ to Calvary, and we were, as theologians call it, united to Him in His death. So that when we put our trust in Him, it was not only to die for our sins, but also to put our sins to death. And the cross of Christ means death to our flesh. And you know what the problem is? Sometimes that old sinful nature, and we all have one. Some of you are looking awfully pious this morning, but I know deep down inside you've got one. Sometimes, even though it can be nailed to the cross... Sometimes it has a way of climbing back down from that cross. And when it's off the cross, it has a way of making a remarkably speedy recovery. In part because we, we sometimes nurse it back to health. And we struggle with what are called besetting sins. Friend, don't take your old sin nature to urgent care. Mortify it. Put it to death. And whenever that old sin nature shows signs of, of life and trying to come down from that cross where it has been crucified, don't let it. Tell it, get, get back up there on the cross where you belong. And then at least figuratively speaking, why not pound the nails in a little deeper? Friend, you don't have to be enslaved to sin. So we don't resuscitate it. We don't take it to urgent care. We don't give it CPR. We don't keep it on life support. We don't send it flowers or a get well card. We leave it at the cross. And again, it's a lifelong battle that we are enduring. So step number one in the process of sanctification is mortification. It's crucifying the flesh. It's laying aside that old sinful nature and putting it to death. Now the second step is found in verse 25. And that is living in the power of the Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit. 
What does that mean? Well, it simply means allowing the regenerated nature that is within to come to life, to grow and develop and mature. It's building it up and strengthening it up. Uh, Paul put it this way in Ephesians 4, 22 and 20 through 23. He said, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what do we do? Well, we put off the old and we put on the new. We feed one nature and we starve the old. Again, this is something that I shared with us way back on September 29th, but I think it's a great statement. Someone said, two natures beat within my breast. The one is foul, the one is blessed. The one I love, the one I hate, the one I feed will dominate. That's true. There are two sides. This whole process of of sanctification. One is crucifying the flesh. The other is allowing that regenerated nature that all of us have within to be strengthened and to be built up and to be uh, moved to maturity and strength to the point where the crucified self stays on the cross As one man wisely put it, the death of the flesh is the life of the Spirit. And if you and I are going to remain faithful and fruitful, how do we do it? Well, we simply live by the Spirit, and we walk by the Spirit. We walk in the power of the Spirit. The New English Bible offers a helpful paraphrase of verse 25. It says this, If the Spirit is the source of our life, let the Spirit also direct us our course. Listen, as a regeneration, uh, as the work of regeneration takes place in the life of the Christian, the Holy Spirit enters the heart of the Christian. And it doesn't mean that we sit back and do nothing. It simply means that we keep on living in the Spirit, which is what the Galatians were failing to do. Again, do you remember earlier in the book what Paul said? In chapter 3, verse 3, he said this, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So how do you gain victory in the Christian life? Well, friend, you gain victory in the Christian life the same way you started the Christian life. And that is by faith. By trusting Jesus Christ to give you the victory. And I love the imagery that you have in verse 25. It's difficult to to see it in the English, but he says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That little phrase, keep in step with the Spirit, is a military phrase. And it's the picture of people marching in unison and following their commander-in-chief doing what he tells them to do. Friends, soldiers don't worry about where they're going. They simply follow the orders of their commanding officer. 
And it's the same way in the Christian life. Our job is simply to do what he tells us to do, running in step with his command. And I love the fact, think about this. As we march to the commands of our commander-in-chief, King Jesus, we don't do it alone. You know what? Other Christians are right there, marching alongside, stride for stride. And as long as we maintain good discipline, there won't be any pushing and shoving in the ranks. There won't be what he talks about. And again, verse 26, I think, fits with this imagery where he says, let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. In other words, what what he's saying here is when you and I stay in formation as we march towards the city beautiful, we maintain our unity of the Spirit. And here's something else where the imagery is so beautiful. A good unit never lets one of its men fall behind. And what happens when they do? Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. We're going to talk about that next Lord's Day. So what's the bottom line? Well, we live a disciplined life. Just like a military army. Let me just add this. The Holy Spirit rarely works in extraordinary ways. Instead, He uses the ordinary means of grace to bring spiritual growth, the reading and preaching of God's Word, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's table, and the life of prayer. And all of these, all of these are what bring about true spiritual growth in the heart and life of a Christian. Godly J.I. Packer has a lengthy statement that he makes in this regard that is worth quoting. Packer writes, The Spirit works through means, through the objective means of grace, namely, biblical truth, prayer, fellowship, worship, and the Lord's Supper. And with them, through the subjective means of grace, whereby we open ourselves to change, namely, thinking, listening, questioning oneself, examining oneself, admonishing oneself, sharing what is in one's heart with others, and weighing any response they make. He writes, the Spirit shows His power in us, not by constantly interrupting our use of these means with visions, impressions, or prophecies. Such communications come only rarely, and to some believers not at all, but rather by making these regular means effective to change us for the better and for the wiser as we go along. Habit, I love this, habit forming is the Spirit's ordinary way of leading us into holiness. You know, as we're starting a new year, let me ask you this, what what kind of habits are you going to have in the coming year? He goes on and he writes, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control are all of them habitual ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving. 
And then he goes on and he says, holiness by habit forming is not self-sanctification by self-effort, but is simply a matter of understanding the Spirit's method and then keeping in step with Him. Friend, that is how God causes us to grow. It's just those simple, daily disciplines. And one of those disciplines is the Lord's table, where we come and we remember the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember the foundation of our salvation. Let me close this morning with the words of the Puritan theologian John Owens. And again, I quoted him eight messages ago. He said this, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Friend, that's good advice. You know what Paul is telling us here in this passage? You and I are not free to toy with sin. We're not free to tease it, to pet it. We're not careless and indifferent towards its devastating effects. We don't regard sin as secondary or inconsequential. It's not something that we should taste or test. It's not a sign of moral bravado if we play with it as if it's harmless. You know what we do? We kill it. We kill it. Through whatever means there is. Whether it's a knife, a gun, or a drone, or nuclear bomb. (laughs) But we don't let it live in our heart or life for another second. We take whatever steps are necessary to eliminate it from our lives. And there's no middle ground. You and I have to be absolutely ruthless with sin in our life. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5? He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that the whole body go into hell. From what Jesus is saying there in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and what Paul is saying here and elsewhere, in Romans 6 and also in the book of Colossians, is eliminate from your life whatever needs to be eliminated to have victory over sin. If it's a place, don't go there. If it's an image, turn it away. If it's a song, don't listen to it. If it's a book, don't read it. If it's a liquid, don't drink it. If it's a person, part company. That sacrifice may be uncomfortable. It may be even painful. It will most certainly be unpopular. But friend, it is absolutely essential for you and I to have victory in the Christian life. As I was preparing for this, I I read about a man, and I couldn't believe it. He had some besetting sins in his life. 
And he went to all of these modern-day counselors who offered him all kinds of things that he should do. And finally, he went to a godly Christian counselor. And he heard his problem. And the godly counselor simply said, well, why don't you just stop it? And the guy looked at the counselor and he said, you know what? You're the first person to tell me that. Can I tell you this morning, if there is besetting sin in your life, stop it. And stop it today. Father, thank you again for this time in the Word. Thank you, Father, for the joy and the assurance that we can have, that we can have victory over sin. We don't have to be enslaved to our passions. We don't have to be enslaved to our culture. We can rise up above it and live lives of purity and honesty and integrity. Father, you will honor that kind of life. And so I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us towards that end. And now, Father, as we gather around this table to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf, I pray that this would truly just cause us to commit ourselves afresh and anew to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. We pray towards that end in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.